This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. What's up, guys? This is RGT85, a.k.a. Sean. You might know me from YouTube, but you might know me from the best wrestling podcast out there, Stu's Wrestling Podcast. You're listening to Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's time. Your host, Stu Well, we made it. It's the 100th episode of Stu's Aston Podcast. I want to thank you, the listeners, first and foremost, and the viewers, if you watch us on YouTube, for all the support. We are nearing three years of the show now, too. I started in January 2019. You know, I'm going to say something here as well. There's a lot of episodes you might not have heard or listened or viewed or watched. So please, please, please have a look through. I've had lots of ex-WWE, WCW people on, NWA people, you name it, they've been on the show. And I just want to say also a big thank you to all the up-and-coming talent from the UK that's been on the show. We've tried to make it diverse over the three years, and it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to hear so many stories, so many good stories, some emotional stuff as well along the way, but that's what makes the show so good. It's the guests that I've had on. Also, a big, big thank you to Chris Dutton, who's been editing the show since 2020 now. Nothing's ever a problem. I appreciate everything you do putting the show out. Thank you so, so much. And leading in to episode 100, my guest today is former WWE magazine and WWE publication writer, Brian R. Solomon. Brian worked for the WWE at quite a pivotal time in the company's history. From 2000, the year 2000, we can remember the hotbed of talent coming through at that point, to 2007. So it's quite the time, the way WWE transitioned. And we get to hear about him also having an interview, an in-depth interview for the magazine with Vince McMahon, where he got to share two hours with the top dog in WWE. Brian writes for PWI Pro Wrestling Illustrated. He has columns in there. He also has a column in Inside the Ropes magazine, which is UK-based, but you can get it in the States. I know Barnes and Noble stock it there, so you can get that. Brian also has authored a brand new book on the career of WWE Hall of Famer, the original Sheik, Ed Farratt. You can get the book at Amazon and all good book stockets for pre-order in April. The title of the book is Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. So yeah, we look forward to seeing that. I'm going to get a copy of that myself. That is out in April of 2022 and you can pre-order it right now. So my guest for the landmark 100th episode of Stu's Wrestling Podcast is Brian R. Solomon, former WWE magazine writer and WWE publication writer, and you can find him on PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, and Inside the Ropes magazine. Enjoy. My guest for the landmark 100th episode of Stu's Wrestling Podcast is former WWF, WWE writer, you also write for PWI Pro Wrestling Illustrated. You've got a podcast with Pro Wrestling Illustrated. 
And you also write for Inside the Ropes, which is obviously UK-based, but you can get it in the States, as I've seen. It is Mr. Brian R. Solomon on the show today. Wow. Do, do I really do all those things? That's a lot of, that's a lot of things. I guess I'm, I'm pretty busy. Yep. Got a Thanks lot for of, having me on. You've got a lot of stuff going on. I think, uh, yeah, just how, how has it been in more current times uh, with Pro Wrestling Illustrated, firstly, you know, writing and then and doing the podcast? I'd like to ask about that first and foremost, Brian. Sure. Well, I, I'm glad that they actually, you know, brought me on board with Pro Wrestling Illustrated as a, a regular contributor because I've been contributing on and off to their publication since I left WWE in 2007. But it's only been in the last, I want to say, like two years, maybe a little less than two years that I've been like every month writing articles for them, you know, and then that led to Inside the Ropes, which I mean, when I saw them starting up, and I saw some of my friends over there. I was like, I need to be a part of this. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I, I talked to some people. And the interesting thing is those guys are, it makes me feel old, but they grew up kind of reading my articles and reading the magazines and things. And they love these old school, you know, WWE people and magazine people and everything. So they were happy to have me on board. So I, I think I have some kind of a record because I think I might be the only writer to be writing for two different wrestling magazine companies at the same time. So I don't want to jinx it, but love is it, it. Is it nice not to be too heavily stipulated, you know, being a writer for them and then your time in WWF, WWE, I can assume you were told to a certain extent that the direction you had to go with articles and stuff. So yeah, how, how is that writing for PWI? It's a little bit of retraining, you know. Um, I always tell Kevin this, Kevin McIlvaney, who's the, the new um, uh, editor-in-chief there, which is that I sometimes have to stop myself from going into, like, like WWE shill mode and just, <laughs> you know, it, because that's part of what we did there. We, we were selling pay-per-views. We were selling merchandise. We were selling characters and angles and things. And, you know, when you're writing for an independent magazine, that's not your job anymore. You know, I, we, we try to cover it. You know, in PWI's case, they, they really try to cover it like a sport, for example. And so I have to sometimes rein it in a little bit with the hype and the hyperbole. Everything's always the greatest of all time. And no match has ever been greater than this and the most exciting ever, blah, blah, blah. So I have to kind of temper it a little bit, but but I like it because it it makes me. Um, um, can, can you hear me? Okay, did yeah, you? Yeah, you're fine. It, it's you're still you're still coming through. Yeah, it it makes me kind of a little freer and uh, more. I mean, I'm able to write more as myself. Basically, is what it comes down to. I'm sure that's just nice, nice for you as well to be, you know have that you know able to do that. Yeah, it is. It is, and. Um, with inside the ropes what i love about those guys is they they really let you go i mean their um their articles have really high word counts from a writing point of view and in the beginning i was like oh my god i'm not i'm not used to writing this long like well i don't have anything else to say but um you know then i realized i do have more to say but it's just i'm so used to having to abbreviate everything my ideas so with them i really get to kind of broaden out and do more sidebars and really kind of take my time with the articles that i write for them i would have to say that i know this is like inside writer stuff but their page word count 
is probably double what wow. I would be used to for most wow. other magazines. And you can tell when you open it up and there's like a billion words on the page, <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's, it's cool. I, I, I like to write in long form, so I'm just not used to doing it for magazines. That's all. It's crazy. You're on board of Inside the Ropes. Bill Apter, my favorite, my favorite pro wrestling journalist of all time. You know, kept kept kayfabe alive, obviously, back in the days. Yes. And and Keith Elliott Greenberg, who's been a guest on the show previous year. What what an array, what an array of writers for that magazine. It just it's testament to you guys all being on board on the same publication. Oh, definitely. Bill is like the, he's the godfather of wrestling magazine writers, photographers, whatever you want to say. And I'm, I'm really proud and, and honored that I can call him a friend. I mean, in the last 15 years or so, we've really become friends. And Keith, I mean, Keith, I'm glad that you got him on here because Keith went from being somebody that, again, I read his articles when I was a kid. <laughs> I went from that to he's now a writer that's sending me articles as an editor to edit, to go in the magazine. And I'm just going like, I, I'm not worthy of this. I, this is ridiculous. You should be editing my articles. But but I, I learned so much from him. I really did from, from, you know, being on the same team of writers as he is and, you know, he's just so good at, at what he does that, um, um, you know, he, he helped me really get to where I am in terms of like my, my writing style when it comes to wrestling, for sure. Really cool. All right, we're going to scoot back now. It'd be remiss of me not to ask about your tenure in WWF, WWE from 2000, sure. 2007. So, yeah, how, how was that initially coming in? into the company and doing and doing that role and uh, yeah how how was it job many dealings with vince or was it with well, other people yeah i did actually ha have dealings with him uh part of the reason for that is that i worked um under shane for uh, quite a while there so shane was uh, for, for people that don't know i worked for wwe magazine and their whole family of magazines their publication department which doesn't exist anymore from 2000 to 2007 and um for i would say a good five of those seven years four of those seven years shane mcmahon was our the head of our department uh, and he you know i mean hands-on doing my performance reviews the whole thing staff meetings everything and so because of that i i wound up having a lot of dealings with with vince over the years probably more than I needed to or wanted to, but I did. And, um, you know, um, in a way it's cool because you get to have like, direct feedback, but in another way you think like, is this really necessary? You know, does, does the head of Disney have to approve like goofy baseball caps? I don't know if they bother him with that, you know, but it, it was what it was. And it was helpful to have access to him. I was able to do two, very long, and I mean like hours long, interviews with him over the years. I did one in 2002 and one in 2003, um, which, I mean, not a lot of people can say they did that. I mean, I, I'm really proud of that, that I got that kind of access, you know, that close to him. Is is he intimidating? That's what I've got to ask you. Or was it always... Yes. <laughs> right, okay. Because I've, yes. I've heard different opinions with guys that I've had on ex-wrestlers ex, um, who, who've worked for him, obviously. So, yeah, so he was intimidating. 
<laughs> yeah, he is. And, and you know, it's like uh, he's a human being. So, you know, I mean, he can be nice and personable and everything, but definitely larger than life. And you feel like you just know you're in the you're in the presence of somebody that's just on another level of the stratosphere than the rest of humans. Like anybody that's spent a lot of time, if you spend a lot of time around high powered people, celebrities, billionaires, things like that, if you ever have, then you might know what I'm talking about. You just kind of get that sense that, you know, this is a person you don't get to be where he is and do the things he did and everything by just being an everyday ordinary Joe. It just, you know, you have to be a special breed. And there were times where, you know, he was completely approachable and personable. And then there's other times where he's totally a more kind of down-to-earth version of the TV character. Absolutely, without question. I mean, I remember one time he told me, and I, I don't know, is, is language an issue on this, on this you podcast? Can, you can say, okay. you can use expletives. It's not a problem so on this show. I was sitting across from him in a conference room meeting and it was weird it was really surreal like the meeting had ended and everybody had filtered out and it was just him me and my publisher barry werner and we were just all just kind of like just talking and i'm just like what's happening right now you know this is crazy and, and you know because he was just feeling chatty and when that happens you're not going to just walk away right so we're just going with it and i'm sitting across from him like this and he says something to me, I forget the context or the reason, but he just goes, you know, um, you can't really succeed in this business and at the level that I do, you know, you can't really be a success uh, without being kind of an asshole. And then he goes, well, you know, you can't really be the kind of a guy who just kind of sits with his hands folded in his lap. And I looked down and I had my hands folded in my lap. And I'm like, all right, thanks a lot, Vince. And I like instinctively like opened my hands up and like tried to look more like like an asshole or wherever he would want me to look. But it was his way of telling me like, you're too nice for this business, you know. And and that kind of in a nutshell is is who he who he is. But that's what I mean. Where like he had to be an asshole. He had to be a bloodthirsty guy to do what he did. He came into an industry, put everyone else out of business and took it over. I mean, not everybody could do that, whether you like him or not. Like not uh, most human beings don't have within them the killer instinct to do that. So, you know, for better or worse. Absolutely. But did you, did you feel pressure, Brian? I know that's quite an obvious question for me to ask. Was it, was it pressure those seven years or did you just stay, you know, calm with it? in that role well the pressure was you know like we see happening even now um people are always being let go and it's not just the talent everybody knows about the talent and you know it makes the news but every time that happens you dig a little deeper and you'll see it's office people too uh it's personnel and company you know staff and so you know i was a part of that and i remember back then um every year there would usually be like that time of year i it kind of is like that too now but it's a little more chaotic there would be that time of year where you would go oh my god okay the, the releases are coming i mean this was a regular thing and you would hope and cross your fingers and pray that you weren't one of the people 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And um, I made it through seven years and then I was one of the people. But, you know, uh, so that was the pressure of like, are we going to make it through another year? And it's a very hardworking environment. That's the thing. It's very hardworking in the sense that um, um, they ask a lot of people. So um, if if you're not ready to work as hard as you ever have in your life, then it's not the place to be because it can be high pressure environment, even for me in a department where um, I, you know, the magazines and publications, we were not a major profit center of the company. We, we, we were, you know, one of the smaller pieces of the pie. So it maybe wasn't as bad as being in other places like being in TV and things like that, but you still felt it. I, I remember I specifically, anytime a position would open up, in the TV writing and creative writing, a lot of times they would come to us because we were writers and they'd be like, hey, does anybody want this spot? Blah, blah. And I would always say, absolutely no way, never, no. Because I knew I'd be gone in like a month, you know? Whereas if I didn't do that, I might actually stick around for a few years. <laughs> and I was right because I saw people do that and they would go on the road or they'd go on the writing team and their days were numbered. Uh, that's just, you know, the turn, the turnaround. I mean, to be for every, um, you know, Brian Gewertz or like Ed Kosky or somebody like that, there's a million other people that just come and go and you don't even realize it and, and you never even hear about them. So nature, nature of the beast, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think um, in and around that time, what a plethora of talent within the company, you know, while, while you were there, it was just, it was incredible. You know, the attitude there was still in, in, in full swing at that point as well. But yeah, any, any guys, any good memories from members of the roster during your time there who've had good interactions and stuff? So many. I mean, like you said, I was there from, I want to say like the, the later part of the attitude era and then really into what they now call, we didn't call it then at the time, but what they now call the ruthless aggression Era, which only comes from the fact of that famous promo that Vince gave, where he called, "I want everyone to show ruthless <laughs> aggression," right? And so the whole era got its name from that. But yeah, I mean, I, I have to honestly say, you know, when I got into it, I remember thinking, "Oh my god, these guys are going to be a handful," and all the testosterone and the ribbing and the you know this and that. There were very few people that were very difficult or rude or um, made my life hard. There were some times like that, but really was the exception to the rule. Most of the most of the guys and girls were personable, approachable, friendly, and they realized, you know, the good ones, the smart ones, they realized that what we were doing was giving them exposure and helping to market their characters and their personas and, and getting them over, helping to get them over anyway. And, and so the ones who understood that, they understood, okay, maybe we're not getting paid for this. I'm not getting paid to do this photo shoot for this cover. I'm not getting paid to do this interview for Raw Magazine, but it helps me in the long run. So, you know, most of the time, they really were very generous with their time like that. 
you you pitched a lot of times like, from what I've read online about the, the the history side of WWF WWE and doing going that route. And um, by read, you were like shut down on it various times where you wanted to cover some of the old school stuff because I know you're very much into pro wrestling history as well. So yeah, yeah just why 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 didn't they take on board what you were saying? Well, I think I was just a little ahead of the curve on that. So like I was saying, when I got there it was still in the midst of the attitude era. So they weren't really that interested in history. If you remember that time period, you know, the hall of fame was gone. And if you had been watching WWF prior to the attitude era, there was a little bit more kind of acknowledging of history and things like that. And even with some of the characters and personas, um, when it came to the attitude era, they didn't really need it anymore. They were, they were printing money. So, you know, because you have to remember, in, in wrestling, everything is about making money in the wrestling business. Everything. I know this This breaks people's hearts, but, you know, even nostalgia, Hall of Fame, things like that. And this is why, if, if there's going to be a wrestling Hall of Fame, it needs to be independent, really. And there are those that are. It needs to be independent of a company. Because the WWE Hall of Fame is a revenue stream. You know, that's the thing. It's nostalgia for, for profit. And there's nothing wrong with that. It is a business. But when I was there... In the beginning, that was not the business they were in. They were just not not, not interested in that. Like, like I've said before, it was just on to the next show, on to the next pay-per-view. Um, and that changed while I was there, thankfully. And I, I, I don't take credit for that. I'm not saying, oh, it's because of me that they started being more history-minded. But it did happen while I was there. And I do sometimes feel that the efforts of... Um, WWE magazine um, are part of the reason why that happened. And, and not just WWE magazine, but all the magazines that we were doing, because we were very history minded in those magazines. We were very um, uh, trying to draw from the past to tell our stories. And I, we would, we would talk about statistics in a way that they never did on TV. We would talk about connections with what's happening right now and the past, which they never did on TV. And you, and you hear them do that a lot more today than I remember when I was a kid watching wrestling, talking about statistics and talking about like things that happened years ago in the, in the business. Like, you know, they'll talk about like even the fact that they reference the attitude era all of the time. If we think about that, we're talking about 20 years ago. You know, that would be like if you were watching TV during the Attitude Era and they could not shut up about Bruno San Martino and Bob Backlund every five seconds, right? Which was not the case at all. Not at all. So that's what I mean when I say that history is much more a part of the product now than it was back then. And I kind of rode the, the crest of that and I was glad to do that. And it led to my first book, which was WWE legends that I wrote for them. But that was a big change that happened while I was there. It's good to, good to know that, you know, you got that, that, that happened, you know, you did, you know, you push for it. So that's, that's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now current wrestling, <laughs> I, what, what are your thoughts and feelings? I know we've had another load of cuts in the past week from WWE, but realistically, how many more guys can AEW take on? Because it's just, the roster, in my opinion, the roster's fine. 
but they can't be looking to add anymore at the moment because there's people getting lost in the shuffle. The likes of your Brian Cages, you know, yeah, and people of that nature. What What are your feelings with, with, with the current, you know, times? Well, I still follow it very closely. You know, I'm one of those people who sometimes you either have people that they love current wrestling, they know nothing about wrestling history really before, you know, they started watching, or you have the people that are, all they you know they care about is the old stuff. They can't stand the new stuff. Now I will say I prefer old school wrestling. It's my preference, mm. but I still enjoy it. I still watch wrestling. I mean, I write for these magazines, mm. so I need to stay current. You know, and, and I feel like um, um, it, it's a very different time now. And I think we have to remember, you know, when you say like for example, people like Brian Cage getting lost in the shuffle or whatever. Something we have to remember now, which I think they understood more back then, is not everybody can be a top guy. Not everybody is going to be the main event, and that's okay. You can't – I'd rather have that than have this hot potato where, like, everybody gets to hold the title. Everybody, you know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a constant rotating door of, okay, now it's your turn to be in the main event. Now it's your turn to be in the main event. Now I get to be in the main event. Sometimes it, you need to have – you have your top guys, you have your middle guys, you have your bottom guys. And – um you know, I, I mean, if you look back at the era of Hulk Hogan, right? I mean, not to say that that was the way you want to go, but it was a one-man show. It was a one-man show, and everybody else that was there was along for the ride, and, you know, the, the, the rising tide lifts all ships, as they say, right? It's not like that anymore now, and that's partly for a reason, is you don't want to hang everything on this one person, then what happens if they leave? What happens if they realize how valuable they are and they start using that for leverage. So that's partly why it is the way it is right now, where you have so many people at the top. But it also leads to this expectation that everybody needs to have this huge push. Everybody needs to be, you know, at the, near the top or at the top. It's impossible. If everybody's at the top, then there's no top, right? So, so you need to have tiers. And, and so I, I really have no, no problem with that. But again, like you were saying too, AEW, um, they can't just be thinking we're going to bring all these people in. That's impossible, and it's not smart. And 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 I don't think there should be that expectation. I mean, everybody says, "Well, okay, now they're going to hire all these people." I don't know where they get that expectation from. They're hiring the people that they think that that have a place there, that they think they can use. And unfortunately, when you have cuts like what's been happening, there are some people who will land on their feet whether it be AEW or making a really good career on the indies because now you've got a really good asking price. And there's going to be some people that are going to have to find another, you know, career. It hap it happens all the time. There's some people that are not really going to be able to make a living at wrestling anymore. Um, and, and, but it's always been like that. It's weird that going, going back to the releases, they've re rebranded Key Flea and then... <laughs> A month or two later, he's he, he's been shelved, and I know he's going to go on to somewhere else and do fantastic. I just understand they've repack, yeah. repackaged the guy, and then a month or two later, he's he's gone. He's he's released. I just it, the mind boggles, but like we have seen it time and time again, you know. And the same thing, same thing happened with um, Alistair Black, where he was repackaged and then gone. And you thought, okay, well, they obviously have big plans for this guy. And, and so, so, see, that shouldn't happen. What, what happened with Keith Lee, um, you'll never, you know, you would never really see that kind of thing happen. 
And I think that speaks to maybe a certain amount of miscommunication on a corporate level, where if you have a person that you know you're getting rid of, you're not going to put in the effort, the creative effort on this person. In fact, you should probably have them out there putting other people over on the way out. And the fact that they're not doing that is it, it, it makes it does make it seem very haphazard sometimes like there isn't a game plan and, and sort of like the, the money people are not talking to the creative people or there isn't a, a, a go between there isn't a, you know, um, kind of open lines of communication maybe between these groups as much as there should be. Um, it's just much more chaotic for sure. Who do you enjoy watching? I know that could be very broad and we could talk about numerous guys, but yeah, who, who are some of the guys you enjoy watching in, in current terms, in current wrestling? Well, I mean, you mentioned Keith Lee. I, I love him. I really always feel like he has a great potential because he's a, a very big guy who can move like a very small guy. You don't see a lot of people like that. I mean, he's like, I mean, like Vader was like that. Like I put Vader up there as probably in terms of my own experience of what I've seen, um, the greatest performing big man that I've ever seen in the terms of really being able to move and really being able to work. And, and he's kind of in a category like that. I, lo I love watching him. Um, I love Eddie Kingston. I think he's great. He's just so believable and everything he does comes from a place of reality. Um, so he's, he's very cool for that kind of thing. I, I, I just really, really enjoy him. I think, you know, there's a lot of really good talent now between the two companies. I have grown to enjoy Roman Reigns. I, I, you know, he's somebody that I thought was dead in the water after all the years they had of trying to get him over as a baby face, as the baby face. They finally woke up and did what they probably should have done with Cena, you know, halfway into his run. And made him into this incredible monster heel. WWE creative doesn't have a lot of things going for it right now, but he's one of the things. And Heyman is a big reason for that too. I mean, they're great. They're just great. Um, I, I enjoy that very much. I, I mean, eventually it's going to run out of steam and you're going to have to think of what else you're going to do with this guy, but it is working right now. And, and, and the amount of people that they've had him work with, and, and still have the people responding very positively to it, um, you know, that, that's encouragement to just keep going with it. So that's another thing that I enjoy watching too, for sure. Obviously, we've got full gear coming up uh, this weekend. Now, I'm, I'm a firm believer they're going to add more pay-per-views. Uh, they're obviously sticking to, to three or four a year, aren't they? But uh, yeah, full gear, full gear is going to be, I think it'll be as good as uh, All Out. <laughs> I, I really, I really do believe. I really do believe. But yeah, what, what, how do you feel with full gear and the card that they've uh, put together? Well, the, it, it goes to show you the kind of buzz that's around that show right now. Um, you just don't get that these days with uh, WWE shows, unless it's maybe like WrestleMania. Like here we've got Survivor Series coming up right the week after that. I mean, I don't know. I feel like nobody's talking about that. It's almost like, I mean, not even WWE is talking about it. They put the, they announced the survivors matches on social media, like in the middle of a Saturday afternoon or whatever. And just like an afterthought kind of, and with AEW, you do get the sense that every pay-per-view is something very special. And I would be against increasing the amount of pay-per-views. Okay. I always felt that monthly pay-per-views 
was not a good idea. But what do I know? I'm not, you know, on the business side of wrestling. So I feel like it it just it makes everything seem less special. It burns the fans out. It creates less urgency to go to a live event. That's another byproduct of it that happens. And, um, you know, I think AEW, the number they have right now, it feels just right. And these events, it creates anticipation. You're waiting for it. You know, this Hangman Page and Kenny Omega thing, you know, we've been waiting for this. We want to see this. There's buzz around it. There's excitement. The Punk and Kingston thing, even though it's it hasn't had nearly as long a build, it's a very short build, the intensity around it is just off the charts, you know, and some of the other matches that they have that, you know, happening there and, and uh, you know, the finals of the of the women's tournament for the TBS title and those kind of things. We've been watching this happen week to week and leading into this, and it feels very organic and natural. See, because that's the other thing with the monthly pay-per-views. And I'll put my foot in my mouth if AEW eventually goes to this model. But it often feels like, well, it's time for the monthly pay-per-view. Here we go. This is it. What are we going to slot in here? Boom, 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 boom. And it doesn't feel like the way it used to feel, which is these intense feuds and angles are boiling to a head. And the only way to settle it is this big, huge, mega spectacular that we have coming. It feels like... You know what I mean? It would feel like the event would grow, even though it wasn't, the event would grow organically out of the storylines that were coming. And uh, there's less of that now. But AEW has more of that feel now than WWE has. I used to love going back now when Sean Mooney was at the event center and then he had Mean Gene doing the report, building up to the pay-per-view. So, you know, like when we... we when we, when we only had four, obviously King of the Ring came in more latterly officially as a show. But yeah, I, I know what I know what you're saying in terms of the building of stuff and the way they're going. And uh, that's that's uh, the Khan's business model, I think, isn't it? I became, I, I can't remember when it happened. Maybe you might remember. I don't know if it was when they started the In Your Houses where they had monthly pay-per-views or if it happened in the Attitude Era. But at a certain point, those event centers went away. They stopped doing them mm. where, you know, you had a clear idea of what matches were coming and, and everyone got to do their promos. I mean, I even remember the days when they do that for house shows, you know, you, you'd be watching and they'd have your localized promos. I don't know if they did that over there with they WWE. Did. They did for the but, tours, for the UK tours. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. And they'd be like, yeah. when I get my hands on you in the Nassau Coliseum, you know, they do that kind of thing. And it made it feel so special. You'd go. I remember as a kid when before I really understood how that worked with house shows, I would really be like, oh, my God, I got to find out. Is, is Hulk Hogan going to lose this title? Like, I can't go to this show. I'm not going. How am I going to know if Killer Khan becomes the World Wrestling Federation champion? And I would look in the newspapers. I would try and find. I would talk to my friends the next day in school. W were you at the Meadowlands last night? Did, did, <laughs> did, did, did Killer Khan win the title? What happened? But there was that that excitement. And then it gets to the point now where it's the brand that sells the tickets and sells the pay-per-views. I mean, I remember clearly when that happened by the late 90s and I would go to a house show and I wouldn't even know who the hell was even on the card. I mean, I, and I'd be going, does anybody know what matches are happening here? And like no one even knew. And you open the, the program and instead of like having the list of matches – it would just be talking about whatever storylines were happening on TV. It was like this all-purpose generic 
thing that would cover whatever matches they happened to throw together. And, and that's the kind of thing that happened where it became less about matches and characters and more about this brand. And I know why they did it because I've spoken to people within the company who said specifically why, which is that's what they want. They don't want people um, coming to see specific wrestlers as much as they want them coming to see WWE so that no matter who is on the card, and no matter who leaves them or, you know, goes somewhere else, doesn't matter. Um, and that really is, a, is something that has come to fruition in the past, like, 15 years, I would say. Like, like John Cena was, and even John Cena didn't have the power of, like, a Stone Cold or a Rock or a Hogan or a Warrior or something. John Cena was the last gasp almost of that, where it's like, we are going to see John Cena. John Cena is here. I want to see him. If John Cena is not on that card, I'm not going. He really feels like the last gasp of that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I remember um, going to house shows. I went to SmackDown house shows specifically around 2002, 2003. And it was just, it was just crazy when you look back who was, who was on, the, on the card. It, Angle, Undertaker, Benoit, <laughs> Eddie, yeah. Eddie Guerrero, and like, you know, Heyman. Heyman was the genesis of all that, wasn't he? You know, um, they were SmackDown was out outperforming Raw at the time, but uh, it was great going to house shows because they, they went outside their personalities a little bit. It always felt a bit uh, freer than what you saw on television. So I I, I love I love going to some shows and SmackDown. You know, that was when SmackDown was at the heights of, of, of popularity and ratings. Yeah, and SmackDown had the cruiserweights too. Yeah. Um, my, my preference has always been house shows. And I know sometimes I talk to newer fans and they just can't understand it because house shows have been so de-emphasized now. And, and you know, uh, I, I know a lot of young fans that aren't even aware that there are house shows. They don't even know that there are shows that aren't on television. And in their mind, the only, you know, they, if they go to a house show, they don't understand. There are people that are going like, where's the TV cameras? Well, what's going on? why is it just a bunch of matches you know and i'm over here going like that's what a wrestling show is that's what it actually is is a series of matches and um you know in a way attitude era television the era of raw and and, and nitro and the idea of every weekly card being like this incredible blockbuster show where like storylines are advanced and you have great matches every week it sounds great on paper but it burns out the fans and it raises expectations to an unrealistic degree that you can't always maintain is what they used to call hot shotting back in the day and you didn't want to do it for the exact reason of where we are now like promoters always had the ability to do that if they wanted we're going to throw everything out there we're going to have title changes constantly happening we're going to have people turning on each other all the time we're going to every week on tv you're going to see the kind of card that you would have to pay money to see but they didn't do that because they knew if they did that well, where do we go from there what happens when people get sick of that we have to be more conservative we have to be careful we have to like deal it out in these little kind of you know ways to keep people wanting more almost like a drug right and with the attitude era and beyond they just put everything out there 
And now we have a desensitized audience. See, I love, I love a good house show. I love going to the show and just being entertained by the show. Let's see some great matches. It doesn't have to change the world for me. Every show. I want to see some great talent, some great matches. You know, I'll go on WWE Network. And again, this is my bias because I'm an old school wrestling fan. I'm more entertained. They just dropped a bunch of 1984 Madison Square Garden house shows on Peacock, which we have here as the WWE Network. I'm more entertained watching that than an episode of Raw or SmackDown and most most pay-per-views, honestly. I'd rather watch those house shows. It just there's something about it where it's the self-contained piece of entertainment. We're not necessarily worried about where it's going, where it was, or you know what's going to happen. It's just let's put on a great, exciting show and have you suspend your disbelief for a couple of hours, and that's something that's been lost a little bit, I think. Well, well surmised, well surmised. Nice to get your take on, you. on it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, now, you've said you're an old school fan. You're a fan for many, many years. Who were some of your favourites when you were when you were growing up and uh, favourite ahead? And and some favourite matches as well. I struggled myself trying to encapsulate. Someone says, "Give me your top three. I can't do it. So I know it's putting mm-hmm. me on putting you on the spot a little bit. But yeah, who, who were some of the guys you love to watch and, and matches as well? Extending that question. Well, I first got into, I mean, even though I became a fan of everything, even before that, of learning about it, but as a kid watching, uh, about the time of WrestleMania three was when I really started getting into it. So it's late 80s, and my fandom went off the charts, I want to say, early 90s and mid 90s, even though everybody talks about how bad WWE got at that point. That was the height of my just mania. I was a teenager or college years. And it was WWF and WCW. I loved WCW during the kind of like Bill Watts, early Eric Bischoff era. Like my favorite era of WCW is, and this isn't a knock on Flair because I love Flair, but it just happened to be from the time that Flair left in 91 to go to WWF to the time that they brought Hogan in. That window, like 91 to 94, is one of the great unsung periods of wrestling to me. That era of WCW, they may not have been, they may have been a second banana to WWF, but their TV product for me was great. I I loved watching them in that era. But I mean, my favorites, I guess, when I first started watching, I was a Randy Savage fan. I was not one of these Hulk Hogan kids. I was the guy that wanted to see him finally lose. <laughs> and and I, I would always be, I was rooting for Andre the Giant, as crazy as that sounds. And when Andre beat him, it didn't really beat him with the twin referees. I was jumping up and down on the couch, just, oh, finally, finally, he's not the champion anymore. And I was excited to see Savage as this new standard bearer, top, you know, I didn't know the term babyface back then, but top babyface world champion. I liked that idea of, of changing it up a little bit. And I laugh today because people will have a guy that's been champion for six months, seven months, and they're going, let's change things up. Things are getting stale. And I'm going like, imagine if every pay-per-view ended the exact same way for four years. <laughs> every single time it was the same person winning and celebrating in the ring. And that's what that was. So, I mean, I, I, so I loved Savage for that. I loved the Hart Foundation, the British Bulldogs. The first Madison Square Garden show I ever went to, the first wrestling show I ever went to, July 1987, it had 
Hart Foundation versus the British Bulldogs. And I mean, it was almost too good to be true to be able to get to see something like that. You know, so I, I was a fan of Ric Flair. I didn't get to see him in his prime uh, at that time because I lived in the Northeast and I didn't have cable. Um, but but I always was a fan of, of his stuff. Um, who else? Well, I mean, in the in the WCW years, I loved Vader when he was world champion. I thought he was such a believable terrifying heel it was so it was so great to get into watching him you know that's one of the things i love about wrestling my own personal preference is the people that enable me to to the people that would make it easier for me to suspend my disbelief you know you know it's not a competitive sport but you want to be able to just kind of like squint a little bit and go, oh, maybe it kind of is a little bit. I could just play along with it while I'm watching it. And I find it's harder to do that now. So I always liked the people that made it just a little bit easier to do that. Um, Bret Hart, when he was on top, um, that was a dream come true for me because I uh, my, my favorite match back then as a kid was Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam 91. And I was like 16 years old. And that to me was like a sea change moment in WWF because they didn't put a premium on, you know, that kind of wrestling, like the more athletic, what you call like the technical scientific style of wrestling. It wasn't really, that company wasn't really about that at that time. And, um, that match was not like anything you saw back then. And it became more the norm. I think looking back now, you go like, well, it's just, a, it's just a match. But that match became a blueprint for like, hey, we could do more matches like that in WWF now. And there were kids watching that and matches like that. You know, Bret Hart versus Davey Boy Smith was another one. Bret Hart versus Owen Hart. People watched those matches and then grew up to become the wrestlers that want to have matches like that. So I don't think you have a Finn Balor or Seth Rollins or Cesaro or anybody like that without the era of Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Because I think that those guys grew up watching that and wanting to be like that. So so anyway, what I'm trying to say is because I love that match and I loved when they broke Bret out as a singles guy, that when they finally gave him that big push... I was so ready for it. I was, I was so thankful that they chose him because I felt like in years gone by before that, Brett would have just been a mid card guy. He would have been intercontinental and that's it. And the fact that they went all the way with him, I was so excited. I, I just, anything that he was involved with, I loved watching and, and those years were great for me. That's why I say, even though that's that added that what are the, the new generation era, right? It gets kind of dumped on a lot. Um, I loved that time of wrestling. I really did. Even when they had Madison Square Garden crowds of like 2,000 people, I was one of those 2,000 people. I, I, I loved that era. No question. No question. I was at SummerSlam 92. And just the fact oh, wow. that Brett, Brett is still up there. Until I met him at WrestleCon in 2013, I could hard, hardly miss the representants. And that is, <laughs> that's not hard for me because I've met, I've met Flair. I've met... Kurt Angle, all the guys over the years, but Brett, I I, I struggled because <laughs> I've idolised him from you know four four years old. Uh, just just incredible. The, the, the matches don't date. The matches still hold up today. Yeah, yeah. And- uh, people people talk about the the match. A match I loved of his, which was the one with the one two three kid on Raw, mm-hmm. and now 
CM Punk when he had his match. I'm trying to remember who the heck it was. They made was a whole thing. Derby of, was it when he had? When it was the Darby Allen. Yeah, yeah. They did the they did the same. Yeah, and I'm watching it going. That's the heart of the one, two, three kid. But that's what I mean. It's like those guys were watching that stuff. And, and you know, when I came to work for WWE, it was during the years when Brett was definitely on the outs. It was, you know, he was in WCW in the beginning. And when I got there and then he retired and he was sort of, and it was before he mended fences and all that. So, but I did get to interview him once. And a lot of people may not remember this, but in 2005, I want to say it was, he actually, and this is five years before he came back on WWE television, he actually made a deal with them to do a DVD release. And because they were doing a DVD release, Shane worked out a deal to also do a magazine. He sort of shoehorned us in there. And even the people who remember the DVD thing, they don't even usually remember the magazine, but because they did a special edition Bret Hart magazine in 2005, I got to do it. They were like, do you want to do the interview? Like, Are you kidding <laughs> me? What? The last thing I expected coming to work here was, you know, I was hoping that I want to talk to this guy, that guy, this guy, but Bret Hart, I never thought that would happen. They put me on the phone with them. It wasn't in person. It was on the phone, but I, I maybe I want to say like two hours on the wow. phone. Just me and Bret Hart, and I got to ask him anything I wanted. These were that was one of the benefits of working mm -hmm. for Shane was that doors would open like that because Shane was if Shane said something, it happened like his his name and it carried some weight, and so that I'm I'm grateful that I got the chance to interview Bret Hart at length. Incredible! So that's like a pinch yourself moment in it. The fun, you know, fun yeah. fun aspect, and you got to have those two hours. I had a lot of pinch myself moments uh, yeah. in those seven years, yeah. for sure. I did. Not just to pigeonhole him, you know, absolutely. I can well imagine. I can well imagine. But yeah, uh, no, good good answers. I had to ask about the fan, the fan perspective stuff to you, obviously. Yeah. But um, more in more current times and stuff coming up, we've got Blood and Fire, the first photography of the Sheik, the original Sheik as well, my Ed Ferrat. NWA Hall of Famer, WWE Hall of Famer, and uh, yeah, you are the author for this book, which is due out on the 12th of April, 2022, because I did a bit of digging online. Yes, I did, and I am, and uh, you know, I, I know that uh, in the UK, the name of the Sheik may not be as well known as it is in other parts of the world, uh, like in, in, the, in the US, in Japan, um, in parts of Asia, where he toured, um, but um, so when you say the Sheik, I think a lot of people, will, the first thing they'll think of is the Iron Sheik, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this book, because that even happens here in America now, because you're talking about someone who's been, uh, he's been dead for almost 20 years. Mm -hmm. He has not, he was not a, a major national star for about 40 years now. It's been a long time. And, but in his day, he was the, the hottest heel the the most money drawing fear inducing main event heel everywhere he went of anyone in the business i mean i'd put him up here he has he can stake a claim to be called the greatest heel of all time depending on what metrics you're using and like jim Cornette has said this is a famous quote that i put in the book which is you know nobody drew more money in more places for longer period of time than the Sheik. You're talking about 60s 
70s, all through those years, like a good 15, 20, 25 year run at least, where he was a main event anywhere he went in North America and then later on in Japan. Um, just, and people believed him. I mean, he lived his gimmick 110%. Uh, I don't even want to call it a gimmick. In the book, I don't even use that word for it. It's, it's a persona that he lived. And so when I realized that no one had ever told his story, uh, I couldn't think of anyone at his level, especially from his period, that had never had a biography. It seems like everyone and their mother these days in wrestling has had a biography, and he never did. And I said, I, I need to change this because I'd been fascinated with him. He was before my time, like I said, but I was fascinated with him from a historical point of view. And I pitched the idea to ECW Press, who's known for doing wrestler biographies. I said, if I, you know, I'd really like to do it with them because they had just done the Andre the Giant one with Bertrand Hebert and, and Pat LaPrade. And I said, I, I would, you know, I feel like this book could be in that in that category. And and they and they went for it. I'm really grateful for it. So like, like you said, it comes out. Uh, in April, but it's already available for pre-sale. And it actually was very recently the number one wrestling book on Amazon, just based on pre-sales. Like I was blown away by that. People were letting me know. People were sending me the link. I mean, it's not right now, but I feel like once it comes out, it will be again. I'm very excited about the buzz around the book. I didn't even expect that to happen for someone that's been gone for so long, but there's a lot of expectation around this book. So I hope I deliver. I think I did, but we'll see. We'll see in April. Great, great news on the on the pre-sales there and where it was where it was charting. That's amazing. And uh, yeah, he, he was the he was the precursor of hardcore before hardcore was even a thing, wasn't he? You yeah, know? yeah. And and not only in his own performance, but he had his own wrestling company, you know, in those territory days. He was the guy who ran basically uh, Michigan, Ohio. He had parts of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Southern Ontario in Canada. So it was a nice chunk of what would be, I guess, the the part of the American Midwest a little bit. And that style is what he proliferated in that area. You know, every area had their own style. And that's what the fans of that area grew to expect. And so if you were a wrestling fan in Detroit, Cincinnati, uh, uh, Windsor, Ontario, places like that, Cleveland, <coughs> that is the wrestling that you grew up with in those days, which was it was very violent. It, there was a lot of blood, and the Sheik was known for throwing fire. Um, I don't think the type of hardcore that he did, w- 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 it was nothing like what you'd later see in, no. in, in ECW, and then, of course, even beyond that in like CZW and you know uh, XPW and FMW and crazy things like that. But it was... It was definitely the, the precursor of that. And, and that's why even um, in FMW, Asushi Onita was a disciple of the Sheik. I mean, he worshipped the Sheik. He used to carry the Sheik's bags in the 70s for real when the Sheik would come to Japan. And so when he was founding this company, he said, I need the Sheik. And the Sheik was an old man by that point. He was in his 60s. And he didn't even know if the Sheik was still alive, still wrestling. The answer to both those questions was yes. So he brought the Sheik. And, you know, every people talk about Sabu from that era because Sabu was made by that FMW run. But you got to remember at the time, it was really, we want the Sheik. And, oh, he has this nephew we've never heard of. And if we bring in the Sheik, we have to bring that kid along. Okay, I guess we could do that. Sure. If it makes the Sheik happy, 
will give his nephew this opportunity. That's what it was at that time. But really, also, Sheik needed Sabu because Sheik was old and had a lot of trouble moving around, couldn't really do the things he used to do. And Sabu was a young man and was able to really carry those matches and do a lot of the heavy lifting while the Sheik got to just be the Sheik, which was really enough. But, but yeah, I mean, he, he, um, that's sort of the legacy he's remembered for today, which is being an innovator of the hardcore style. But he, but he really was so much more than that. I mean, so much more. Just the believability that he portrayed as this evil heel. You could watch videos of people scattering um, in his wake, just in terror of this guy. And, and even back then, a lot of the attitude of fans that were even smarter, let's say, it was sort of like, we know wrestling is a work. We get it. But we're not totally sure about this guy. We don't know if this guy knows that it's a work. You know, Terry Funk, who I interviewed for the book, he gave me the greatest quote, which I wound up using as the opening quote of the book, which is, he said to me, I'll, I'll try to do the Terry Funk impression if I can. But he said, <laughs> he said to me, everybody likes to say that, that wrestling's fake. Well, nobody told that son of a bitch. <laughs> and, and that's from a guy that worked with him for a long time and grew up around him because the Sheik worked for his father in the 60s when Terry was in, was in high school and college. So he would know <laughs> how dangerous the Sheik was. I look forward to this coming out, you know, officially. You. I'll definitely, I'll definitely be getting, I like my, love my pro wrestling history. So yeah, absolutely look forward to that. And uh, yes, I'm just trying to think now, where can the viewers and the listeners find you in terms of the socials and yeah, social media where they can find you? Sure. There's a few places um, on Twitter and Instagram. I am Brian R. Solomon um, on Facebook. If you look up pro wrestling FAQ, I do a lot of wrestling updates and information about my wrestling-related work there. I also have a website. It has kind of an unwieldy URL, but you will find it if you go to my social media. So that's kind of the, the best places that you can find me um, online. Thank you so much. Brian R. Solomon. Brian Solomon, former WWF, WWE writer from 2000-2007. Pro wrestling historian. You can find Brian with Pro Wrestling Illustrated, one of the you know, best publications there is. And also the UK-based Inside the Ropes magazine as well. But you can get it. I know Barnes & Noble in America do stock it because people get it two or three weeks after normally the issue over there. So yeah, it is available worldwide. And uh, yeah, just thank you for coming on for the 100th episode of Stu's Wrestling Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I am flattered to be the 100th guest. I didn't know that coming in, but I will take that accolade and I will <laughs> add it to my impressive list of honors. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Ryan. Much appreciated. A big thank you to Powered Ford TV for putting the episodes up on the on-demand service there. Big thank you to John Scott and Rich Crowhurst for all the support. Really appreciate it week in, week out. Nothing's ever a problem. Also, we're doing Powered Ford TV Big Fight Weekly, the MMA and boxing show with my cousin Rich and John. I've put on these first it's been fantastic with that thank you to Chris Dutton again as always for the superb editing I couldn't do this without him and fantastic job once again thank you to Mike Angus for the intro as always to the show 
You can find the Stew Dressing Podcast merch at WrestleMerchCentral.com. There is loads of stuff, lots of different items that you can get. Mugs, hats, face coverings, t-shirts, hoodies, even the new varsity jacket with embroidered Stew Dressing Podcast logo on it. Big thank you once again to Dean and the team for listing my products on there. Great work, great work. And we will see you soon for the next episode of Stew's Wrestling Podcast. Podcast Network.